As we come to worship Jesus Christ today, uh, we're going to consider the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So let me invite you to turn there in your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter 28. If you take one of the Black Pew Bibles, it will either be page 784 or page 835, depending on which version of that Bible you get, 784 or 835. Uh, we'd like for you to look through this chapter with us and study it. I want you to see this morning that what I'm proclaiming to you is something that was composed over 2,000 years ago by human authors who were led by the Spirit of God to write his word. And so we want you to see this in your Bible so you know as you leave today that what this preacher proclaimed is what comes from the scripture itself. In our opening scripture reading, we considered the end of Matthew chapter 27. There we learned that after Jesus' crucifixion, the Roman ruler Pilate told the guards to make the tomb of Jesus as secure as they could. What irony is in that statement, though? For no living being would be able to make this tomb secure. Regardless, the soldiers try. They place guards on watch, they roll a stone in front of the tomb, and they finally secure it with the seal of the Roman emperor, Caesar. If you broke this seal, it would be bad news for you. It would not only be bad news for you, it would be bad news for the guards who were to watch the tomb. So it seems that the sinister leaders of Jerusalem and Rome may have actually put more stock into what Jesus predicted would happen than even his own disciples, for they are nowhere to be found. As we come to Matthew chapter 28 then this morning, we're going to come to Matthew's account, the gospel writer's account of the resurrection of Jesus. But what we're going to find this morning is that he doesn't actually record many of the events of the resurrection of Jesus. Instead, Matthew draws our attention to focus on the different way people would respond to the resurrection of Jesus. Or, to put it more specifically, the way different people would respond to the empty tomb. So today, we are going to work through the first 15 verses of Matthew 28. And as we do so, we're going to consider two responses or types of response to the empty tomb of Jesus. And it's my belief that everyone in this room will respond in one of these two ways this morning. You either re respond in the Christian way, so we'll see the Christian response, and then we'll see a false response. We see first in verses 1 through 10, the Christian view of the empty tomb. We're given two good examples of those who respond to the empty tomb with faith. They believe that Jesus has risen, and they respond with obedience. We see this in an angel and two women. Look first in your Bible, verse 1. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. 
And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Verses 1 through 4, we first learn or hear about an angel. And Matthew describes his action and his appearance. The angel comes down from heaven. This is his action. He comes down from heaven and he either causes an earthquake or performs his actions in conjunction with an earthquake caused by God himself. The angel then rolls the large stone away that sealed the tomb. Angel's likely not concerned at all about what Roman rulers might do to him. And so he sits on top of the stone. Verse 3, we see his appearance. Matthew described him as this way. He looked like lightning with snow-white clothes. In other words, his appearance was bright and supernatural. There would be no way that anyone would, would mistake this being for a human being. The one that looked like a flash of lightning. And we know that because in the very next verse, verse 4, the text says that the guards, the strong Roman soldiers, shook. So the ground is not the only thing shaking here. So are, the, so are the knees of these strong soldiers. And then they freeze like incapacitated dead people. This description of the angel and the guards leads us not only to his own view of what's going on, but also to the view of two women that were introduced to in verse 1. Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary. So to read more about the way they view the empty tomb, look in your Bible, verse 5. I want to read verses 5 through 10. It says, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So in these verses, Matthew's drawing our attention to these two women, these two Marys. And in God's grace to them, God sends two beings to help them interpret what is going on at the empty tomb. First, you can see this in verses 5 through 8 in your Bible, he sends an angel. And the angel frames his words to them around three commands that he gives them. His first command in verse 5 is, do not be afraid. It's a command from the angel. And I love the angel here. He's so kind and gentle with these women. No doubt they were perplexed by an open tomb and the appearance of one that looked like lightning sitting on a gravestone. So the angel starts with this command, do not be frightened or alarmed. And then he explains that Jesus is not in the tomb, but that he's risen, just as he said he would. That leads to his second command. 
come and see. This was an invitation to go into the tomb and to confirm that what the angel was saying was true, that Jesus wasn't there. And then finally, the angel gives his third command to the women, go and tell the disciples. They're to go quickly, the text says, uh, and let the disciples know that Jesus has risen. And so the two Marys obey. The text says that they turn away, they hurry away quickly, following the angel's prompting exactly. The text says that they run away on a mission and tell the disciples. They're going to tell the disciples all about this. And, and as they leave, you see in the text, it says that they are filled with two strong emotions. Fear and great joy. Although the angel had told them not to be afraid, they, they can't help themselves. I mean, this is too phenomenal. Their fear, however, is paired, as the text says, with great joy at the same time. Have you ever experienced both fear and joy at the same time? Of course, just coming back from Disney, all of my sermon illustrations today will have to be from Disney. That was the only thing I did this past week. A very fond memories of one of my children's reaction to the fastest roller coaster we went on at Disney. It was the very first ride that we got on. It was on Space Mountain. I won't tell you which one of the children, but he or she, (laughs) after the ride was over, was smiling from ear to ear, but at the same time was shaking. It was a full body shake. Ever been there before? These women are filled with great fear, awe, and great joy. That's when God shows them more grace. When he sends not only an angel to them, but he sends Jesus to help them interpret what's going on in verses 9 and 10. Look there again in your Bible, verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there you will see me. One of the things I want to point out about verse 9 is that it starts out with the same exact two words as what you see in verse 2. Look in your Bible in verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel. It says, and behold, look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them. Two different signs that God will send for these women to help them in his grace to them to interpret what's going on. An earthquake with an angel, and then a more significant sign, Jesus, who simply says something like, in modern English today, hello. The more powerful sign is Jesus. And these two women respond by seeing the risen Jesus by taking hold of him. This is an important point that Matthew's emphasizing. Okay, Jesus rose bodily. He was not an aberration. He was not a ghost. They can take hold of him. Women understand and believe that Jesus is alive. He's risen and he's standing before him. And so these two women have the experience. I think they, they experienced the greatest miracle ever. And this greatest miracle is right before him. They touch him. 
This miracle then becomes the central event of Christian history and of Christian theology. Think about it. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we might as well close this service down, sell the building, and let some developer turn this into a waterfront condo or apartment or something. Without the resurrection, we've got nothing else. And so this one event that they experience is the very foundation of all that we believe. I'll go back to the Bible, your text in verse 9, and notice how they respond. It says that they met Jesus, or Jesus met them, they come up to him, they take hold of his feet, and they worship him. That word worship there is one of the strongest words in this text. It's the main verb near the end of the text. They worship Jesus by grasping at his feet. And, and that's also very strong language, grasping at one's feet. The word grasping is a strong word used throughout Matthew's gospel in several different ways. For instance, the word grasp was used by him to describe the way a servant would take hold of a man who owed him 100 denarii. Roman pieces of coin, he owed him a lot of money. So the man grasps him, he seizes him by the throat and begins to choke him. Matthew's Gospel. This word grasp is also used of Jesus' command to the soldiers to seize the one who he would kiss. Okay, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to kiss Jesus. And when I do that, you grasp him. You seize him. And so these women respond with genuine, authentic worship. They clutch onto Jesus's feet. This leads Jesus to give them two commands that they've heard already before. Two commands. First, do not be afraid. Since the women's fear had continued from the time they met the angel, he repeats the command of the angel. Like we should probably not blame them again here because things are escalating for them. I mean, it goes from an angelophany to a Christophany. The appearance of an angel to the appearance of the Son of God. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. And then he commands, go and tell my brothers, the disciples, to go to Galilee to prepare for a visit. And while we don't have time to look at the whole chapter, in the rest of this chapter, we could see that they were obedient to these commands, go and tell. These women respond in faith to the empty tomb, and they, they take the word of Christ's resurrection to the disciples. Men and women, this is the right way to respond to the empty tomb. This is a way that those who believe in Jesus Christ, who believe that he rose from the dead, will respond. They will go and tell others. So I ask you, if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this supernatural event that God orchestrated in raising his son, will you be like these women? Will you go and tell others? Respond in a Christian response to the resurrection. But Matthew's not done narrating the way that people responded to the empty tomb. And so as we close, I want to look at verses 11 through 15. And I want to see a false view or a false response to the empty tomb. Look in your Bible at verse 11. 
It says, while they were going, that's the women. Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. What I find interesting as I studied the text these last two weeks is that the guards perform in a very parallel way to the women, the two women, the two Marys. They both see the empty tomb. Both have the opportunity to see that the tomb is empty. And they both go and tell. Uh, in this text, in verse 11, it's in the past tense. Some of the guard, middle of the verse, went, that's go, into the city, and told, that's tell. So both the guards and the women go and tell. I mean, how could you not? Angel, empty tomb. You're going to go and tell someone. And at the beginning, these guards' witness is accurate and true. Look at the end of verse 11. They tell the chief priests all that had taken place. They're good witnesses. But these guards are bought off with silver. Text says in your English Bible, a large sum of money. It's the word for silver, a large amount of silver. Here, the wicked leaders of Israel, the elders and the chief priests, parts of the Sanhedrin, they had already used silver before at the beginning of the demise of Jesus. They'd taken counsel before and came up with a plan, and their plan was to buy off Judas Iscariot for 30 pieces of silver. Now they're going to try to buy their way out of another problem. See, these guards are in power and they have money. They think silver fixes everything. So they come up with this plan. They even tell the guards what to say. They are to say that the disciples came while they were asleep and took the body of Jesus. Before we close, I want to... I want you to consider just a few things about this. First, imagine the predicament that these guards were in. So I want you to consider the predicament. They knew they were in trouble. Normally, guards who lost a body like this, allowing someone to break through Caesar's seal would be executed. I'm sure they knew that Caesar as well would not likely believe their explanation if he ever heard it. Okay, so you guys were on duty. What happened? Well, an angel came and the body disappeared. I'm sure they knew that wouldn't go over very well. So their only way out would be to admit their culpability and suggest that they actually fell asleep on the job. That normally, by the way, wouldn't go well for them either with Caesar. But the chief priests and the elders reassure them that they can buy off the Roman governor Pilate as well. 
One great Bible scholar described what's going on in this passage this way. He says, at least in this case, if they trusted the elders and chief priests, the guards would have some people in high places who could help them. So they take the offer to avoid execution. That's the predicament. Now, I want you to also consider the response. This week I thought about how people might respond to the testimony of these guards. Could you imagine the conversations? Conversation number one comes from a friend. So, tell me, you were there. Tell me, what happened at the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth? Well, that's easy. We fell asleep in the middle of the night. The disciples came, rolled back the stone, and took the body. You slept through all of that? I mean, there were 11 guys who came and they rolled back that huge stone and, and then they dragged the body of Jesus out? You slept through that? Yep. <laughs> That's what happened. And uh, how about your authorities? How were they with that? They're okay with that? Yep. Imagine another conversation he gets from that one. He comes to someone a little bit more perceptive. So you were there. What happened at the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth at night? Well, we fell asleep in the middle of the night. The disciples came and rolled back the stone and took the body of Jesus. Do you really expect me to believe that? That's ridiculous. Why do you think that's ridiculous? Well, if you were asleep... You didn't see anything. You didn't see anybody. You are either lying or you're making this all up for some reason. Yet men and women, this is how people without faith respond to the empty tomb of Jesus. They make things up. They refuse to believe. They close their eyes. They plug their ears and they devise their own way to save themselves. As we close this morning, I ask you, have you believed in the risen Jesus? If so, go and tell everyone else about him. If you really believe this, you must tell others about it. When was the last time you told your neighbor or your co-worker, that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You believe this. Go and tell like the women. If not, if you do not believe this, you must today. Romans 3, verse 23 Paul the Apostle, led by the Spirit of God, writes, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is a very important verse in the New Testament Scripture, for it tells us of the reality of sin. All have sinned. In another place, in Galatians, Paul the Apostle says that all of Scripture can be summarized in three words. God, here they are, ready? All under sin. Galatians 3.10, all are under sin. Romans 3.10, for all have sinned. 
The reality is, is that every person is a sinner. We all lie, we cheat, we lust, and we're filled with pride. When we compare ourselves to another human being, maybe, who's done something worse than us, and what we need to understand is that the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that the right person to compare yourself is not another human being, it's the glory of God. Says, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. His absolute perfection in being, that's the standard. And that, men and women, is what the Bible would call the righteousness of God. Think as well, a little bit later in the book of Romans, where Paul is talking about what all this gets us. What sinning gets us. We all fall short and we do not measure up to the standard of God's glory. So in Romans 6.23, Paul says, and the wages of sin is death. And that's important, men and women, because Jesus Christ himself told the disciples in the Gospel of John, he said, when I go, I'm going to send the Spirit of God into the world. And when he comes, he is going to convict men of three things, of sin, of righteousness, and here's the last one, and judgment. That's what God's Spirit does today. He is convincing men and women of the fact that their sin produces death. And that that death leads to an eternal punishment in hell forever and ever. But then we read the last part of Romans 6.23, the verse I just read. And it says, But the free gift of God is eternal life. And you say, how? The free gift of God is eternal life? How? Last part of the verse. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Listen, these, these two women went to the tomb to perform perfume the dead body of Jesus, but they experienced something far greater that morning. They met the risen and exalted, they met the risen Jesus and they worshiped him. Perhaps you've come here today for a religious experience, good singing with friendly people, a good moral lesson from the Bible, but you have discovered something far different. You've been introduced to Jesus, risen from the dead to pay for your sins. May I tell you, no matter how far you have strayed, this is the way for you to be considered God's friend and to live with him forever and ever. Won't you believe in the risen Christ today to rescue you from your sin. This is the center of Christian history. It's the core of Christian theology. And it is the only thing that can save you.